Yeah. So before we, we get into the nuts and bolts of uh, starting the podcast, Sam, you were saying something about Kanye West? Yeah, well, apparently Kanye West is very passionate about Christianity. Stephen, you were also talking about this, but you, you mentioned that he was releasing a Christian album, and that makes sense given that he held a Sunday service at Coachella 2019, where they basically, from what I can tell, stood in the middle of a field and did some artistic performances and renditions of different pop songs, like Stevie Wonder. I am so confused. Is it like an extension of Quest Church in Seattle, or...? I think so, but <laughs> uh, yeah, that was. That was I legitimately thought it. I legitimately thought this was this was satire when I first saw, I saw it. That it was like some onion adjacent yeah. article. Kanye West releasing new album Jesus is King. I could have sworn it was it was uh, satire, or it was going to be like a a scathing critique of Christianity with plenty of you know sacrilege and whatnot thrown in or something. I was convinced, and no, it. He's actually sincere no. about it. Well, ostensibly no, yeah. sincere. Ostensibly. No, he's, he's talked a lot about it throughout his career. I mean, he's talked a lot about a lot of things. Actually, Kanye's talked about everything at one time or another. But uh, no, he, his relationship with Jesus is very, very important in his life. So, huh. I had no you know. idea. No, this is like it, the pictures of the Sunday service are, it looks like about maybe 50 or so people um, all dressed in purple of different shades. Purple. Okay. Like, yeah. Okay. Um, with like long t-shirts, you know, and rad up pants and stuff like that. And um, yeah, and he's he's rapping on this hill. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every world yeah. religion slash cult has to start somewhere. Um, some, actually, probably most, if we're honest, started Coachella. Yeah, that's a fact. <laughs> On that note, uh, hello everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, we recorded an intro before, but Sam got disconnected when his house Wi-Fi went down, so we're very glad that he's back uh, for episode two of season two and then is gone forever, um, except for maybe occasional dispatches from England. Um, Sam, how are you feeling about that? I'm, um, I'm feeling okay. Yeah, I mean... That's not I'm the pro- answer that we wanted, Sam. You're supposed to be torn up about this. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're like, crying yourself to sleep every oh. night over the idea. Like, come on, man, give us something. I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really choked up about it, and I wish I could record podcasts every single day with, with you guys and talk about the problems with reading, so I'm so, so sorry. And I'm just... It's really a really trying time in my life. Mm. You see, um, I know you're lying, but it still makes me feel better. Okay, well, that's okay. That, that's all good. And and that's the motto of the self-help movement. Uh, Let's move on to our next topic. (laughs) Let's let's move on to our next topic. Uh, What are y'all drinking right now? Uh, Steven. Uh, Right now, I am drinking uh, some ice water. And uh, if if those of you who are regular listeners of the show know that I regularly drink ice water, but this time it's actual ice water. Like, it's water with a bit of ice in it. Wow, I forgot about that, but now I'm questioning everything. Uh, Sam, what are you drinking? I'm I'm drinking absolutely nothing right now. I'm I'm dead serious. I, I forgot to get anything to drink, and also I'm moving. I'm actually in the process of moving at the moment. So mm-hmm. I kind of I was getting back to my house to record this podcast and then pack up the rest of my boxes that are surrounding me and then leave. And so I'm sitting in this room surrounded by boxes with all my cups in them, and there's no drinks in the house. And um, 
Yeah. That's a rough there's, spot to be in. It's a rough spot. So we there's nothing to drink. Yeah. Well, so, I, yeah. I mean, speaking of the self-help movement, um, if even if there's nothing to drink, at least you can drink in the moment. Mm. Uh, that was that deep, was man. That was really wholesome, Brevin. Yeah, I saw it on the bottom of a Snapple cap. All right, as for myself, uh, I am drinking, what else? Uh, bourbon. Um, but speaking of bourbon, sad news, terrible news. Kirsten Gillibrand is out of the presidential race. Sam and I have a no. special connection to her. We were so committed to her campaign. Do you want to know what we did? Stephen, ask Sam and I what we did. Okay, I, I will. I will in a moment. But first, I need to know who this is because we were messaging about this earlier and I asked who it was and you guys were very unclear. Oh, one of the 25 plus people running for president now, probably down to like 15, the 10 that are in the debate, and then like five hangers on who are just yeah, she, trying. She's the, huh. she's currently the senator from New York. Yep. I see. Yeah, she's currently the, the senator from New York. Footnote the, to that, did the, is it common for there to be 25 candidates? Because I remember last no. time it didn't work out so well. So did they just not learn from their mistakes or something like that? Well, there's there's no clear inheritor, just like there wasn't a clear in- inheritor this last time for the Republicans. Like for the Democrats, it was pretty much, it was going to be Sanders, it was going to be Clinton, and then there was like one or two people who hung around for like two debates and then you never heard from them again. I see. Um, but this time, with Clinton not running, there's no clear person, except for Biden. Biden's the most clear. Um, gotcha. Oh, yeah, wait, and, it was the Republicans last time around that had yeah. the 50 million candidates, and it was the yeah. Democrats that only had a few. I got that mixed up. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and Brevin, to be fair, last time, by, or, uh, Sanders really wasn't a contender because the DNC was kind of rigged against him. Yes. And, and, and the Republicans did have a clear winner, and that was our very illustrious Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush. Jeb. Yeah. <laughs> With an exclamation yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the turtles. The turtles. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. Turtles but all the way down. Steven, but yes, I'm Steven. going to ask. I'm going to ask. ask why us. did you like this? I've already forgotten. No, 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 no. Yeah. no, no, no. Ask us how committed we were to her campaign. How committed were you to this individual's campaign? Well, okay. So, Jinx, <laughs> Jinx, you owe me a coke. I wrote this down, so I'm going to say it. Okay. Um. All right. So I saw an ad on my Facebook feed. Drinks with Kirsten. Bourbon, beer, tea, whatever you want. One dollar donation, and you can enter a drawing to be flown out to have a bourbon with Kirsten Gillibrand. And I was like, hell yeah, I like bourbon. <laughs> okay. And so I went to, so I clicked on the link, and there's a thing, and you know, it says like, do you want to donate one dollar, two dollars, five dollars, twenty dollars, a hundred dollars to Kirsten's campaign? Get her on the stage, help her meet that donor limit. And I was so committed, let me tell you, so committed to her campaign. Then mm-hmm. I scrolled all the way to the bottom of the page where there's a tiny text that says no purchase necessary and entered there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and, and he immediately messaged me. It was like, Sam, you want some free bourbon? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but now that she's dropped out of the race, I, I don't believe this is going to happen. And I've wasted like 30 seconds of my life and then several minutes reading increasingly panicked fundraising letters in my spam folder from her campaign. No, I actually... First of all, you couldn't just enter there. You had to put in your phone number and email address. And I actually, literally three hours before she dropped out of the race, I was getting text messages from her campaign, like, demanding me to donate. And, yeah. And then she dropped out. Sam, had we donated, we could be sipping some sweet, sweet bourbon with Kirsten Gillibrand. She could be on the stage if we had donated. And that would honestly be a travesty. You know what? If we've learned anything, you and I are the true villains here. Or heroes, because she should not be president of the United States. 
Is, is she not a good presidential candidate? This is a non-political podcast. No. No, oh, yeah, the articles we candidate. have coming up are totally unpolitical. I resemble your implication that we are too political on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay, never you mind. It, you can cut that out. She is a perfectly fine person, and, and I will make no judgment on her ability to govern the United States of America. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we are anything but judgmental here. Anything but judgmental. In fact, we are so non-judgmental that the next 20 seconds will just be Special Victims Unit. Dun-dun! Just kidding, we're not going to do that. I, no, please do that. Please. <laughs> or like some elevator music, maybe you know, kind of like punctured with dun-dun. I will do like three of them, so you might I, think that I'm going to do that, and then it will stop. Okay. I'm feeling okay. like... I'm feeling like bird sounds and <laughs> ocean noises to just emphasize yes. that we are not at that all. We are not. That we are not at all. The okay. people need to know. Judgmental. Okay. Anyway. Let's, let's move uh, right into articles. So, uh, you know, we've just talked about Kirsten Gillibrand, but uh, speaking of the downfall and rebirth of the Republic, Stephen, you had an article about some fights happening in the conservosphere. Yes, I do indeed. Um, and it's in the conservative sphere, uh, first things sphere, and general Christian theologian sphere. So many spheres are being covered. Uh, we might even get some like hypercubes thrown in there and, uh, and whatnot. So this article, uh, I was looking around for articles to, to, to peruse, to read, as it were. And the, literally the first one that popped up in first things, I clicked on it and decided before reading it that it was going to be my article. So here we are. This is the in-depth research and rigor that you've come to expect from the Problem with Reading podcast. Nothing but the highest of qualities. So this is a sloppy attack on national conservatism by Bradford Littlejohn, and it is on uh, First Things. So you're saying that Bradley Littlejohn wrote a sloppy attack on conservatism? Exactly. Exactly. Or are you saying that's the title of the article, and it was written by Bradley Littlejohn? Why not both? Touche. It's actually, he actually made a YouTube video in which he destroyed the libtards. Um, and it was, Damn, uh, I would be to see that. Oh, absolutely. So he is, he's writing about a sloppy attack on national conservatism. So this is a response article to a response article to an article and a convention. Uh, the original article that started this whole debacle is, uh, against the dead consensus. And it was a manifesto of sorts, uh, signed by some popular conservative, uh, Christians and discussing how conservative thought needs to adapt in the wake of Trump's presidency. Quote, there is no returning to the pre-Trump conservative consensus that collapsed in 2016. Any attempt to revive the failed conservative consensus that preceded Trump would be misguided and harmful to the right. End quote. Uh, the article briefly touches on some of the positives of late 20th century conservatism, as well as its failings, in essence accusing it of selling out. Uh, they sketched out a few points of what they wish to see conservatism bring to the table, concluding with, quote, whatever else might be said about it, the Trump phenomenon has opened up space in which to pose these questions anew, and we respectfully decline to join with those who would resurrect warmed-over Reaganism and foreclose honest debate, end quote. Uh, while one may disagree with some of the points that they touched on, I'm not going to really go over them. They're pretty cookie-cutter. Uh, I, I personally didn't find anything they brought up all that crazy. Seemed like standard boilerplate conservative thought. Uh, however, a response article... Uh, open letter against the new nationalism and appeal to our fellow Christians, signed by a very impressive lineup of Christian theologians, including David Bentley Hart, Stanley Hauerwas, and Miroslav Volf, 
lambasted this article along with uh, the recent National Conservatism Conference, accusing both of extolling nationalism as a Christian value. Uh, this article cites 1930s Germany, where large swaths of the church, including some eminent theologians at the time, thought they could compromise with German nationalism and ended up supporting the Nazi regime. They expressly condemned this, as they should, and urged their fellow Christians to do the same, stating that this conservatism is promoting American nationalism. Uh, the article goes on to reject five main ideas, and I'll pause to, to remind, this is the, the second article, the, the original response article. So we have the article, this response article, and that's the one we're on right now. It goes on to reject five main ideas, which I'll say briefly. One, the pretensions of nationalism to usurp our highest loyalties. Two, nationalism's tendency to homogenize and narrow the church to a single ethnos. Three, the xenophobia and racism of many forms of ethno-nationalism, explicit and implicit, as grave sins against God the Creator. Four, nationalism's claim that the stranger, refugee, and migrant are enemies of the people. Five, the nationalist's inclination to despair when unable to monopolize power and dominate opponents. Uh, these things are, of course, excellent things to reject. The problem is, according to the original article I brought up, none of these things were ever advocated for in the first place. Neither against the dead consensus nor the National Conservatism Convention brought up these things as desirable or even useful in a utilitarian way. Several times throughout the convention, xenophobia and racism were explicitly condemned. My interest in this response to the response to the article article uh, lies mostly in the interaction between all of these articles, the meta article, as it were. Uh, the impression I get is that most of these individuals are completely talking past each other with no real discernment as to what they're getting at. To Bradford's point, the original uh, author, or the, art, the author of the actual article I'm discussing, uh, to Bradford's point, the open letter against the new nationalism makes accusations of the sort of toxic ideologies primarily based seem seemingly on the fact that the word nationalism was used a handful of times. And while I wince at the Against the Dead Consensus article's use of the word, I see Bradford's point. They never give their loyalties to country before God, deplore xenophobia, refuse to see power as the end-all be-all, etc. Like, it, it seems that they're legit. To the open letter's point, however, I see that behind the language there could lurk a sort of toxic patriotism mutating into nationalism. Just because someone says, and here I'm quoting David Brog speaking at the conservatism conference, quote, if there is anyone here tonight who believes that being an American has anything to, whatsoever to do with the color of someone's skin, there's the door, please leave, your ideas are not welcome here, end quote, does not necessitate that they're not harboring racist, xenophobic, or ethnocentrism sentiments. It just means that they may not be overt or even conscious about it. I can love people of every nation, but if my political policies advocate American economic growth at the expense of other nations, that still means I'm promoting a more toxic nationalism. So ultimately, I have no real conclusion as to who's right on this one. Bradford's analysis seems pretty solid, but then again, the minds of Wolf, Howard Wass, and Hart are pretty sharp, so I'd be surprised if they were falling into, into line with the cookie-cutter anti-conservative meta. So really, I just wish that more dialogue would, between the two parties would happen, which, to be fair, I think these sort of open letters and responses are at least a start. Yeah, I, I found the, this set of articles very interesting, and I, defin I very heavily resonate with the idea that there's a lot of discussion to be had. I, I think there's a very good case to be made that we are moving on from a previous consensus. Just even with, at, at, at the time that it was formed, the world's makeup was very different. You would think it would have shifted, but for a lot of people, there hasn't been any, not even necessarily rethinking, but even rephrasing of things, I, I would say. I, I think especially with the unexpected political events that have happened and the evident... I don't know, 
material circumstances that underlie those, there is room for innovation. And that also means that there has to be room for some bad ideas. There has to be room for debate. And, it, you know, in terms of bad ideas, I think First Things has put out a few. The Against the Dead Consensus is maybe a bit strongly worded for me. Um, their Daniel McCarthy article talking about a new conservative agenda was was contentless and and just bland. But there is room for a new ripe debate that tries to take into account the um, sort of populist uprising within the Republican Party against the intellectual elite of that party. And along that line, the the open letter in response to it, I just, while I, I sympathize with the contention that there may be some unsaid biases or bigotry or whatever in against a dead consensus or at the conference. I, I, I know how conferences work. You, you get a, the speakers who you know, are polished and whatever, and then you get, you know, the people who are true believers, and then you get the weirdos who, you know, show up to things, you know, not, not everyone who likes what you say you will like. Um, and that's not an excuse for, for things like racism. It's just to mean that people are a lot more diverse and think a lot different than you than you would probably prefer. And I think the article by Little John just sort of points out the dismissiveness unfortunately, esteemed people like David Bentley Hart, Stanley Hauervoss, Miroslav Wolf, and Cornel West, that they're just dismissive of the debate under the guise of dismissing all these terrible things that are not necessarily contained under that umbrella. Right. It, it seems that it seems that the the uh, the article, the conference, every every person who's kind of in the leadership of that would kind of just nod their heads in agreement and be like, yeah, we're against that too. Like, what are you what are you even talking about? And to be fair, like it's it is one thing to nod your head and say like yes, we are against that too. It is another thing to actually promote policies that are against that as well. And maybe there is some room for discussion on that. But I think that that discussion is short circuited when accusations like this or, or like the ones made in the open letter when those are thrown out. It's in essence saying you guys are bigots. You guys are promoting these xenophobic policies we like you need to stop it's like well well hang on can we can we discuss why they are can we discuss the the damage or the lack of damage that may come about with these and i i i think the critique is at least a a reasonable one but i think a lot more discussion needs to happen before these sort of accusations are thrown out no i totally agree with you is i think that the the way that the open letter, the points the open letter makes are completely legitimate. And I definitely agree with them that those kinds of nationalism and racism, um, those racist nationalist stances are bad and have no place in a Christian ethos. The two parts of this that I, I guess, had challenges with is one, that they're at both sides are equating the conservative coalition with the Christian ethos. And I'm trying to think back in history if there's been an if there's been an occasion when the conservative party, meaning the Republican Party and the coalition that made up the Republican Party, was entirely representative of the Christian uh, Christian way of life, the Christian way of thinking, and the values of Christianity. I think that the Christian the Christian leaders have traditionally aligned themselves with the Republican Party, but that's not to say that the Republican Party is uniquely Christian. And so I think that that, I don't know, the blurring of the lines there makes the situation a little bit more complicated. I think that I agree with where, where one of you was saying, Stephen, I think, was saying how we need to be able to have conversations about what actually makes up our conservative group 
And I'd say that Christians may be able to have conversations of exactly what makes up the Christian group and what disagreements are okay and what disagreements are not okay. Um, because just declaring that you people cannot think these things towards a group of maybe Christian conservatives is not productive. To your point about the historical sort of multiple representation of Christians in government by different parties, I the only thing that I have to say against that is that if the um, sort of, I don't, I don't know if reformist is the right word, but the, the people who want to innovate inside of um, traditional conservative doctrine in the United States, political doctrine, if they are right, then, then they're may be reason to believe that the sort of status quo of government is moving to become incompatible with traditional Christianity, that is orthodox Christianity, in, in at least some ways. And there's one quote, I think, in particular from the open letter that sort of magnifies the degree to which some Christians miss the undeniable good point of the, you know, first things crowd for all the other stuff that they don't like or the stronger rhetoric that they don't like, such as, anyway, this is the quote from the open letter, quote, nationalism forges political belonging out of religious, ethnic, and racial identities, loyalties intended to precede and supersede law. Patriotism, by contrast, is love of the laws and loyalty to them over leader or party, end quote. And that instantly just sets off like a million alarm bells, like the ethnic and racial identities, we can all agree, shouldn't supersede rule of law. However, religious identities absolutely precede and supersede law. And I think everyone, if you took that in a vacuum, would agree with that religious, you know, being the underpinnings of, you know, your beliefs about the universe. The thing about patriotism says that patriotism is love of laws and loyalty to them over leader or party. So what about bad laws? Like, is 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 a patriotic Orthodox Christian supposed to love and be loyal to laws that clearly violate their Christian faith? And in the context of Nazi Germany, which they compare sort of the modern American right to, and then, you know, sort of immediately backtrack. Actually, it's a perfect example of of the ex post facto Trumpian hand wave that I'll be talking about in a minute here. They say, in Nazi Germany, Christians had to choose between the state and Christianity, but America isn't like that. But it's like, okay, but you're clearly saying that it is. And they they just don't deal with that with the possibility that the laws could be bad and that there could be need for a party that reforms it along the lines that the first things crowd would like. And they also just don't even acknowledge the well-reasoned critiques of the liberal order that have, that have been popping up. Uh, one being, you know, the demon in democracy, Patrick Deneen or Rod Dreher, where they say that liberalism may have a bit of an illiberal character or at least some kind of character that butts heads against any kind of, you know, public faith commitments or group faith commitments in, in the name of, you know, sort of a, of a broad public rationalism. And the, the open letter just completely glosses over all that. So that got me a wee bit worked up. I, I can definitely agree with you, the, the glossing over of um, kind of the, the really good points that the uh, Against the Dead consensus, consensus article brought up. I, I would disagree with you on the uh, kind of critique of patriotism being the love of the laws and loyalty to them over leader or party. I think, I think that's a bit of a straw man um, in that I would, I would argue certainly patriotism is you are, loving, you are loving the country that is the overall structure of the country, the community of the country, the laws of the country. But that's certainly not to say that you can't say, hey, this one law or this set of you know, policies or what have you are clearly antithetical to what we're going for. I would say, if anything, patriotism is love of the telos of the country that you're in and the desire to form the laws accordingly. Sure, but if that's true, and and you know, so like granting that the 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 language that the open letter 
adopts provides no room for legitimate first principles or even a, the telos of a nation just because of its narrow formulation of nationalism, bad, patriotism, good. Uh, fair enough. I, I do wish that they had fleshed out their idea of patriotism a bit more. Um, the one sentence is certainly, I would argue, not a good one, especially given the minds that are on this open letter. They probably could have crafted a better one for sure. Yeah, one, one thing is that, and that they bring out right in the first paragraph of this, is they say that we are a very diverse crowd writing the open letter. And I know, I guess the only two, or two of the theologians I have more experience with in this list are the last two, uh, Miroslav Wolf and Cornell West. I know that they would definitely take these arguments several steps further. Cornell West especially would agree with those critiques of liberalism. He's, he's very anti-liberal, and uh, Miroslav Wolf would, Wolf would just see it as highly irrelevant and a huge distraction to engage in those, in those activities, I guess. So the point being is I don't think that this letter is a comprehensive viewpoint uh, or a comprehensive uh, compilation of their perspectives. I think it's the one point that they, there are the few points that they can agree on. So I think many of them would take it further just to answer Brevin's kind of request for them to do so. And I think that that highlights the, the ultimate problem with the letter is that the uh, consensus nature of it hmm. me- means that it is a it is built on a coalition instinct. It's people coming together saying, oh wait, we are a team versus those guys, not let's have a conversation about the illiberalism in the liberal order and figure out how we're going to, you know, deal with this. It's, it's kind that, of a, a sub-tribe that's being formed and, and kind of tribalism that is starting to, to take over these sort of important discussions that can take place. I mean, it's, I mean, just from reading it, these people aren't going to have a, or are, are likely not to have a good faith argument with the people who wrote the Against a Dead Consensus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like this, this letter precludes further discussion from happening. This is the final point of their side. This is their, you know, their stake in the ground. No one's crossing it. Which was what the uh, what Bradford was talking about when he said, like, look, they just seem to be completely missing the point of the uh, against the dead consensus article. And, and I think to be fair, Bradford missed some of the point that their letter came uh, came up with. But it seems that a lot of these, they're just. It's almost like they're, you know, straw manning isn't probably the best word for it, but they're just, they're completely missing each other. And, and it's because of this kind of, they have to all hop on this common platform and attack the other platform that they're, that they're missing. So speaking of hopping on a platform, uh, Heidi Schreck, the writer and co- and, uh, and star of the one-act play, What the Constitution Means to Me, is the subject of my article, which is Cheering the Constitution's Demise in the Atlantic. So as I mentioned, uh, Heidi uh, is the writer and star of this play, and she talks about the Constitution. Not a normal topic, you'd think. Uh, but when your topic is, you know, sort of burning it to the ground, you know, you can at least draw some audience members, one of which is the writer of this piece. And Trek's backstory is that she would give speeches in American Legion halls in, like, uh, competitions based on the Constitution. And the prize money that she won won her way through college, after which she developed uh, a, a much more critical view of the Constitution. Um, and I just want to read a couple quotes from the article because they sort of sum it up. But before I, I do that, Basically, she just takes a very critical stance to the Constitution, viewing it as having lots of problems, sort of the originator in in many ways, I would probably say mostly a projection of the current political problems that she sees just being sort of, you know, a person generally on the left, you know, a liberal. Um, and and this, is the, uh, this is the author of the piece speaking who reviews it somewhat negatively. Quote, 
By now I had watched enough of what the Constitution means to me to recognize this as an instance of what one armchair sociologist calls the ex post facto Trumpian handwave. Everyone knows the pattern by now. A sincere opinion followed by an insincere contradiction meant to cancel it out. The president will issue some absurd and tasteless tweet telling, say, a quartet of congresswomen to go back to the countries they came from, which in most of their cases is the United States. And then a day later, he will stand before a teleprompter and read a clarion call for national unity, regardless of race or creed or country of origin. It's not convincing, but it's catching. By the time Shrek insisted she has no intention of vilifying men, she has already told us several revolting tales of male barbarity with, with several more to come. Indeed, one of her chief insights into the Constitution is that it was written by men to protect the privileges of men from all persons who weren't men, which, if true, certainly sounds like good grounds for vilification. But seriously, quote, I love men. She vilifies because she loves, end quote. Uh, Later on in the piece, quote, she wonders why, as a girl, she loved the Constitution so passionately. Because I did, I loved it, she adds, in what may be just another EFP Trumpian ham hand wave. By play's end, it's become clear that if the young Shrek did indeed love the Constitution, it's because she misunderstood it. And if her passion for the document has cooled as she's gotten older, it's because she's transcended her earlier misunderstanding to misunderstand it even more, end quote. And the author goes on to demonstrate and discuss her general lack of interest in how she's not terribly considerate. She basically just wants the Constitution to be sort of a a, a deus ex machina for all the problems that she sees in society and is sort of aghast that it's it's not that, not recognizing that issues are very sticky and and complicated and and that, um, you know, that there can be uh, contrary opinions to the matter. The writer continues quoting Shrek. What does it mean? Shrek asks plaintively, that the document will not protect us from the violence of men. The writer answers, quote, it means, among much else, that the Constitution can't do everything, and more important, that it shouldn't claim to. This is why the Ninth Amendment is so appealing to someone like Shrek. It gives the illusion of comprehensiveness that the document otherwise lacks. There are bad things in the world, and the Constitution should eliminate them, not only violence against women, but, she says, climate change too. And more, having done away with the bad things, it should guarantee the good, the right to abortion, for example, and universal health care. She notes that more than 100 countries enjoy such positive rights constitutions in the world today that actively rectify inequality, including gender protections on page one, provide health care and protect the environment, end quote. The Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment just says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people, which in her interpretation means, you know, the Constitution guarantees everything that I want, at least according to the author of this Atlantic piece. Um, so I, I found this very interesting because I first heard about Heidi Schreck on the on the media podcast, uh, which is a podcast about the media by a station in New York. And they had a very positive review of this just in, in terms of her of this woman's sort of self-described transformation, you know, an unthinking liker of the Constitution to a heavy skeptic of it and then sort of back to thinking that maybe the Ninth Amendment can solve all of the problems or more accurately that it should, um, which is disturbing for a lot of reasons. Uh, I won't get into many here, but maybe just the central one being that when your problem, when you can't figure out a problem and solve it with your neighbors, and you can't figure it out with your local government, and you can't figure it out with your state government, and you can't figure it out with your senators, then you just go to the highest possible authority to jump over everyone's heads and make this and make the solution that you want happen. It's somewhat indicative of a authoritarian-esque mindset or something like that at least uh, but you might disagree yeah i i really i thought this was a it was a good article he seemed to to do a good job 
I think representing what she was going for, and then a good job critiquing it. I uh, I I really liked. He he brought a very good point when she she would cite uh, these instances of other countries having these great constitutions that were guaranteeing, you know, you know, protection of women's rights and you know climate change and and all these things that are kind of very much not only just buzzwords that are thrown uh thrown around a lot in the political sphere, but objectively good things to to protect. And then he brought up like, well. But look, a lot of those countries, even if it's protected in their constitution, they don't follow through on it. Like, and, and so there's this disconnect with, it, it, it seems like the appeal that the constitution, adding an amendment which is just going to snap a fingers, solve everything, it's just not a realistic one. Um, it, it, it requires a lot more. And now maybe that would be a step, um, adding an amendment, for example, saying, I don't know, uh, it's saying like, the United States must con- must contribute this amount to preventing global warming or, or what have you. Like maybe that would be a step in the right direction, but if the collective will to do so is not there, it's still not going to happen. And so I thought that was a very valid critique that he offered. But I think ultimately the the scary part was, and Brevin, I think you and I were discussing it a, a bit earlier. The I don't want to come across as belittling or patronizing to, to her. I'm certain that she has done a lot of, of thinking about these ideas um, that she's presenting. But whenever I hear stuff like extreme calls to action, such as like her seriously considering the idea of like, let's just throw out the constitution and maybe write a new one or something like that. I almost don't even believe it when I hear it. Like this idea of let's just throw out the constitution that this entire country is predicated on. Like, do you really want that? Have you really considered what's going to happen if that happens? Like, that that's a massive paradigm shift. Maybe it'd be for a better, or maybe it'd be for the better, but you don't know that, and that's a huge risk. And I I almost find myself just not believing her. Like I I almost find myself thinking maybe she's using hyperbole to get a to get a discussion going on. And and if that's the case, bravo! Like clearly this is happening. Clearly we're discussing it right now. But holy cow! Like I. I kind of, yeah, I don't know. It's just a scary thought. The fact that people are seriously kind of throwing around like, yeah, let's just, let's just throw it out. Let's start over. Yeah. So I, I was kind of thinking along a different vein and trying to figure out how to, how to link it in. It's more linked to my rant. And it's kind of a, I guess, a different perspective on the article is that it seems like this is the sort of thing that happens when you have poor constitutional education in that she initially learned, you know, the constitution, what the, what the constitution means to me. It means all these great things. It's all this, you know, excellent foundational stuff and I have to honor it in everything I do and think. And what that leads to is as you become an adult, you her reaction may not be that misplaced of feeling rather um, jaded at, at it. Um, and so I think that part of the solution may be, I guess, better education of what the Constitution really is, how it's modified, and what it guarantees and what it doesn't guarantee, what it's supposed to guarantee and what it's not supposed to guarantee. And so then when you get to this point of her being an adult, or when she gets to the point of being an adult, she's not trying to demand these things to the Constitution because she knows what its parameters are. I think it starts a little bit further back with her core premise of her play, which is that the Constitution is supposed to be this incredibly meaningful document, and it is not. I'm not sure if that's necessarily related to the, to the arguments you guys are making, but that's kind of the, what popped in my head about this um, article, and I will say more about that in my rant. Damn it, Sam, you always bring nuance to these things. I know, right? It's that awful. That was not nuanced. <laughs> that was a little bit nuanced. I may have been spacing out during part of your argument, though. So, 
It was not okay. necessarily Well, engaged. obviously, I should stop talking and let Sam start talking. And it is your turn. It is my turn. Well, my article is a little bit more, I would say, optimistic. Um, but it's, it's, it's a little bit related to Stevens in that it addresses um, some of the divides that we're seeing in America. Uh, this article, though, is written by our former Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis. Uh, it was an essay that he put in the Wall Street Journal called Duty, Democracy, and the Threat of Tribalism. And it was actually some excerpts from a book that he's apparently writing. I read this article, it popped up on my Facebook feed, and so I decided to read it, and I thoroughly enjoyed the article. It was very, very well written. Um, it's quite long, and he spends a lot of it talking, at, telling stories. That's not a bad thing, because I think General Mattis is an excellent storyteller, um, but I will kind of gloss over those a little bit. So he starts by talking about his the, the process of being nominated to Secretary of Defense, and he talks about how he received the news from Vice President-elect at the time, uh, Mike Pence, that... Uh, Trump would like to speak with him about Secretary of Defense, and he talks about that whole process of going through, you know, what the duty, what it meant to him to take on that duty, and um, what he, how it related into his career as a Marine and everything that he learned in that. And then he talks about some values that he learned as a Marine. He talks about how the Marines prepared him to adapt, improvise, and overcome any situation, and how as he was going into this new role, he took that mindset to heart, and he knew that he was going to need to adapt to fill this more civilian, the civilian-oriented leadership role. He then continued to give more encouraging messages from the Marines and what it was like to, um, what it was like, I guess, how, how he was applying those to his uh, daily life. And then he talked about the United States international relations stance, which, Brevin, I'd like to hear some of your opinions on this because you study this more, how he talked about how we need strong and welcome allies, how we need to welcome our allies in, and they need to welcome us in. But we also need to be a strong power in the world and hold that strategic stance in order to be appealing to our allies and be able to bring something to them and offer them freedom as well. Um, after his international relations bit, he talks a little bit about what it means to be a leader. And this is the part that I guess I found the most interesting, where he said that a wise leader must, or quote, a wise leader must deal with reality and state what he intends and what level of commitment he is willing to invest in achieving that end. He then must trust in his subordinates and know how to carry it out. Wise leadership requires collaboration. Otherwise, it will lead to failure. He talks about how we need to, we need, we as a country need to better deal with the imperfect world that we're living in and address the new uh, concerns. They were just new um, issues that are coming up. He says that we should do this through creativity, through creative solutions. Uh, at one point, he says, "Woe to the unimaginable." unimaginative one who takes refuge in doctrine. He's saying that what he learned as a Marine is that he has to always be adaptable, always be flexible, and always be willing to learn um, how to face new challenges. After talking about all these principles, he then goes into what he's most concerned about, which is the internal fractures in America, the divides that we were talking about earlier and that we've been talking about for most of this podcast. How democracy is an experiment, but we can reverse our current policies and find unity in some of the core principles of America. Uh, he says how we're focusing on too many of the unimportant things, uh, unimportant divides, rather, and allowing those to fracture us. Contrast to this, a state requires unity behind that, uh, un unity and, some, and finding a common oneness beyond those smaller divides. So my question in all, uh, after, after reading this, is can these lessons that Jim Mattis learned in the Marines be applied in, well, first of all, can they be practically applied in politics, and can they be applied, applied in some of the other divides that we've talked about, the divides that we're seeing in religion? And can we be able to find some kind of common unity 
through creative solution um, instead of siloing off into tribes. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this article. And man, like it, it, it brought about this kind of surprisingly kind of sad feeling um, towards the end. I, it's funny because you said this was rather cheerful. I, I got a little sad towards the end, um, kind of thinking of this idea of, well, first, the, the, uh, this man who clearly like loves his country. He has, he has given his life for this country. And you may agree with the, the uh, military. You may disagree. But he wishes America nothing but the best and wants it to do well. The warrior monk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, it, and him just kind of saying, like, look, we can do this. We can have these important discussions between the party lines we can, or over the party lines. We can do this he would cite stories of of uh you know different military people i think he said something uh to the effect of like politics ends the moment you like the moment you cross over o- ocean lines or something like yes. i forget exactly it was a lovely quote though um, i've heard that from other um former service members as well as when i mentioned i'm studying politics they're all like oh well the military you know we we never talk about politics because we're defending our country and that's that's it like that's that it's doesn't matter yeah. Doesn't matter and to I, our bosses. And I guess I, the, the, the sad thing I kind of conclude is that, while certainly, yes, I think it's possible that we could go back to having these civil conversations and Republicans could sit down with Democrats and openly talk about their, their varying beliefs and try to, try to kind of see where the other is coming from, maybe come to a compri- compromise, or even if not coming to a compromise, at least walking away knowing more about the other. I'm becoming more and more skeptical that that's ever going to kind of get back to that if it to be fair if it ever was at that point i mean our country opened up with you know our politicians having duels with each other and killing each other so like mm-hmm. it may be a, a mistake to nostalgize too much but um to to give to give all our listeners a little spoiler i uh, a friend of my a friend of mine and i are, are reading a book on propaganda um and in essence it's it, it's kind of how propaganda pieces work and one of the conclusions the guy says is like propaganda it's it's a race to the bottom and once one once one party does it that like that party is just going to win and so the other party is required to do it and the other parties required to do it and it just kind of becomes this this spiral down to the bottom of like it's more efficient it's better that way so that's what it becomes wow that book sounds fascinating on an unrelated note hey steven my birthday september completely un- <laughs> <laughs> um, talking to the point about America starting with uh, sort of a divide at the beginning the only I would say that America post you know revolution was pretty united but that's only because we kicked all of the loyalists out to Canada so we started off relatively okay and then it's all been downhill from there mm. um, we just so, need to kick everyone else out to Canada yep that's damn it everyone you're so right to Canada everyone moved to Canada <laughs> um, um um, so this article s- sounds absolutely amazing, but I was defeated by the Wall Street Journal paywall. Mm-hmm. So in in lieu of you know carefully considered opinions, thoughts, reactions to this evidently well written piece, I will offer you um, one, two, three, four uh, quotations from the warrior monk Mattis himself. Instead, number one: be polite, be professional, and have a plan. To kill everyone you meet. Oh, yeah, sounds about <laughs> good, right. Good, good advice. Good advice. Two, two. The most important six inches on the battlefield is between your ears. And three. Yep, yep, makes sense. Yeah. PowerPoint makes us stupid. Okay, that one I actually <laughs> can get behind. Yeah, yeah. And number four, fight with a happy heart. What? James Mattis. Fight with a happy heart. I just, I'm trying to imagine like 
Saving Private Ryan, like the beach scene, and all of them are just like, I'm so happy inside. Chesh. Poor guy, poor guy's yeah. getting just shredded by bullets, but they're fighting with a happy heart. Happy bullets, happy bullets. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Sam, uh, wow. just, just Stephen, you're terrible. Uh, Sam, two <laughs> two seconds on on Mattis's affirmation of U.S. hegemony. One, absolutely, the U.S. should hedge everywhere. Two, what? Um, two. This is especially important with China's uh, recent in- recent and increasing aggression, both on the trade front and also in the you know South China Sea. Um, that's particularly concerning, but. It's also a question that relates to sort of long-term trends and minor plug. I wrote a short book review for First Things that appeared on their website. And that talked a lot about the future of demographics. And what the argument that the authors make is that the U.S. with its compared to many other countries, with the exception of the least developed ones, has a relatively robust birth rate and potential to essentially keep its economy going at the same time that many countries will be suffering pernicious effects from dropping birth rates and um, essentially, you know, sort of demographic sabotage. And China is going to be hit with that really, really hard in, I don't know, like 2050 to 2100 is, 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 is going to really, really hurt in terms of an aging population with not a lot of replacement and, you know, like an oversaturation of men, just like all sorts of issues that make China both potentially volatile also at risk of striking out so just for the it is in the world's interest for china to have a counterweight and there is absolutely no counterweight to china other than the u.s so go america go america america but i i think i'm not sure how much uh i i have not really considered the politics of uh of mattis but i yeah i i guess i just go back to i i really do respect his kind of appeal to to unity and kind of this realistic like guys there's i mean even to brevin's point like guys there's no one else like they're like kind of at this point for better or for worse we're still one of the leaders of the the free world and yet internally we're just getting fractured over and over again and he he has another quote i really wish i'd written down a, um, a lot of the quotes that he gives there there's some good ones uh yeah but so, something to the effect of like you're he's more afraid of kind of the the tribalism the, the fractured identity of america than any enemy that could possibly uh be be rising against us um that that's going to be kind of if anything is going to undo us, that's going to be what undoes uh, what undoes us. So yeah, it's it's both a very endearing article in that I legitimately like watching a person who legitimately loves his country kind of talk about it and talk about how it could be a, a good one. But also, it's kind of scary him saying like, "Man, this is this is a rough situation." Yeah, it was also I remember experiencing a fair bit of, of fear when he stepped down as Secretary of Defense and he wrote a letter about that, and he mm-hmm. mentions it here in the article and the reason he stepped down was because he was like, well, I had concrete solutions. I had advice that we need to keep, you know, strong allies and, and keep the faith with them and, you know, stand as a world leader in that way alongside others. And those solutions just kept resonating uh, and falling on deaf ears. And I yep. realized that the president deserved to have someone who he would at least listen to in the Secretary of Defense. So I stepped down, which is just so such high integrity, but also so scathing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very polite, very professional way of saying you didn't listen to me. Like you you listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. Now listen to me. Yeah. But uh, no, Jim Mattis is is quite incredible. Um, One short Jim Mattis story and then we can probably should probably move on to rants. But um, I actually had the privilege to see him speak on um, on Memorial Day. Oh, no kidding. 
yeah, yeah, it was at a uh, opening of a veterans uh, park at the at the um, Seattle Museum of Flight, actually. And so it was, it was mainly centered around the Vietnam veterans. And he did not fight in the Vietnam War, but he was the keynote speaker. And so there were speech, you know, several speeches before him, all thinking the veterans, because it was this big, huge project, Welcome Home, and basically like acknowledging a big, you know, thank you for fighting in that war. That after there was very little acknowledgement of mm-hmm. the honor and all that, even though it was a very, very messy conflict. Um, and he was keynoting, and I and there were probably a good five thousand people there in this basically a parking lot. And Dang. and he could have easily stolen the show because he's Jim Mattis. And he got up there, and his speech was very. It was just completely centered on the veterans. It was just a very honest, humble thank you to them and how honored he was to be there and an appreciation for their service. And he talked about that for about 10 minutes, and he stepped down, and that was it. Wow. Thanks. And I, was, I, I thought that was pretty incredible. That really That's, is. Yeah. So, you, know what that, you know what that puts me in mind of? David Foster Wallace's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, he, he writes this beautiful article about McCain, and uh, in a very similar way, like he, he disagrees with a lot of McCain's policies, mm. but he keeps flashing back in his head to McCain as a prisoner of war in Vietnam and the integrity that he showed while in, uh, in a prisoner of war, uh, camp and the fact that he, he kind of gave everything and was ready to even like to undergo torture and the possibility of death for his country. And just, he couldn't get over this idea of McCain and, uh, in this case, Mattis being so dedicated to something outside of themselves. And so Mattis is kind of fully acknowledging this day is not about me. Uh, this is about the veterans that served. Uh, yeah, that, that really resonates. Mm. Steven, everyone, surprising no one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what can I say? Well, you could say something else and then maybe I wouldn't be so angry. Speaking of anger, uh, Steven, do you have a rant for us? I do have a rant. I do have things to say. Uh, so, I recently, uh, under the advice of uh, one of my coworkers, uh, got into a bit of Cormac McCarthy, uh, who is an excellent writer. I cannot stress that enough. Very, very good. Uh, his prose is excellent. His stories are compelling. But sweet mercy, that guy is depressing and nihilistic as all get out. So I, I started with The Road. And The Road is a post-apocalypse uh, setting a, a, a young, or a um, kind of a, a young boy and his father. And they are, they are traveling along the completely destroyed remnants of society, foraging for food. And unlike a lot of, uh, I think I actually may have discussed uh, The Road, but this is, this is going to go to a rant, I swear. Um, uh, unlike a lot of post-apocalypses, uh, which are predicated on rebuilding, this one is not. It is over, society is done, and it's a good exploration to what is it to be human, what is it to be kind, what is it to be good, when society has completely failed and there is no recovery. And he does do some, there are these brief moments of just gold of people being human as they should be in the, in the harshest of conditions. But on the whole, still very, very nihilistic, very hopeless. And then I read Blood Meridian, which is reputed to be his best work, and I can see why. Again, very well written. But this one, where there was at least some glimmers of hope in uh, The Road, with Blood Meridian, it is 100% nihilistic, like just evil people doing evil things, bunch of depraved war criminals running around killing innocents, and that's about it. And he gives it a very almost religious force, this, this violence. Uh, it, it almost becomes God. War is compared to God. And just, it, it, it's a rather depressing uh, outlook on life. 
third book I've, I've started reading is Canical for Leibowitz, which is a, is a post-apocalypse, <laughs> is depressing, but still it radiates with hope. It never really shirks, uh, it never really looks away from the depravity that would come with the post-apocalypse, but it's still brimming with light and with beauty. And it, it's, it, it's just, it's so sad to see, like, clearly a literary genius like Cormac McCarthy, but who wishes only to kind of concentrate on this nihilism, this hopelessness, this despair. Uh, and it puts me in, why, in mind of, and I swear this is the last time for the, this episode of the podcast, uh, a great David Foster Wallace quote where he's being interviewed and uh, he's talking about literature and kind of its purpose. And he says, quote, look, man, we probably most of us agree that these are dark times and stupid ones. But do we need fiction that does nothing but dramatize how dark and stupid everything is? In dark times, the definition of good art would seem to be art that locates and applies CPR to those elements of what's human and magical and that still live and glow despite the time's darkness. Really good fiction could have as dark a worldview as it wished, but it'd find a way both to depict the world and to illuminate the possibilities for being alive and human in it. Which I think, at, to be fair, I think at least... A little bit of the road did, but with his masterpiece, Blood Meridian, he completely tossed that aside. And I like literature is made to illuminate beauty and goodness and not to deny reality, not to deny the darkness of reality, but still to, to bring about hope. And uh, it's just kind of it, it, it's sad to see such a such a brilliant guy kind of just giving in to complete despair. Speaking of giving into complete despair, paywalls, they're dumb, and they stop me from reading cool things. I would have read the Mattis uh, article, but I couldn't get to the paywall, although if I tried a little bit harder, I probably could have worked around it, but then I would have had to walk to a library, yada yada, whatever, but that's not my my real rant. Um, My real rant is about uh, Greta Thunberg, a, I think that's her name, a young climate activist who's drawn a lot of media attention recently, she's like 12 or 13 years old. Um, all about saving the Earth from future climate catastrophe, so much so that she took a boat across the Atlantic instead of flying to come to a climate change conference in New York, I believe. So, you know, very committed to the cause, you know, young childhood idealism, maybe. The incredible crushing and illuminating irony is that to get back, she will be relying on a crew of two new adults who will fly from her home country to the U.S. and then take the boat with her back across, effectively doubling, if not more so because she took two people over there who presumably will also fly back, doubling, if not quadrupling, the amount of emissions that just her taking a plane across the Atlantic would be. And from what I've read, she may be entirely, sincerely obsessed and concerned with these issues. This is not an indictment of her, but it is an indictment of the harmful and permissive behavior of the adults around her who don't disabuse her of this radical ideological purity or at least add the tiniest bit of nuance. In the pursuit of shiny signals of virtue, we are all made Sam. We're all made Sam? We are all made, yes. We're all made Sam. That's that's concerning. But um, no, I, now I feel really bad that I'm about to take a flight across the Atlantic. So No, you should feel fine. At least you didn't take a boat and then have two people fly to take you back also. And I'm and I'm flying on a Boeing Dreamliner, so those are supposed to be like they're supposed to cut emissions by like fifteen percent or whatever. So basically, so pretty much no emissions. Pretty much none. Like so I yeah so 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 I'm pretty sure that you just saved fifteen percent of Guam uh, and you know like a small child's house where her where his family has lived for generations, and you just saved that little square foot of land. So now he's not underwater, and you've saved his life. 
Sam is the hero we needed, not the one we deserved. Definitely not. No. So my real rant, real rant, is um, related to what I was saying on uh, Stephen's article, or Brevin's article. Yeah, Brevin's article, is I'm very frustrated with the lack of constitutional education that is permissive in the pop conservative circles. So I'm not a constitutional scholar. Like, I, I'm not. I enjoy the study of it. I've taken a couple courses on con law. I did a week-long seminar this summer. It's interesting. It's fun. But it's not, it's not my main area of study. Somewhat related. Prager University. Um, Prager University has decided they're going to sue YouTube on the grounds of the First Amendment for restricting their videos and putting them behind restricted mode. And so this popped up on my Facebook feed this week because they apparently brought it up to the Court of Appeals after the case was dismissed in both whatever whatever court it started in and then district court. Now it's in the Court of Appeals. And I first saw their ad for donations to take on big tech on my Facebook feed. And then I saw a bunch of um, conservative friends or acquaintances, I should say, down at the Seattle courthouse of the Ninth Circuit protesting big tech. And I started pressing some of them on what exactly the case was involving, what was exactly going on. I ended up watching the entire court hearing, which was, which was interesting. It was like 45 minutes long and very fascinating. And within the first couple of minutes, I realized that Prager University had no claim under the Constitution. And the, ju- and the judges realized that as well, which was clear from their questions. But when I was trying to engage these acquaintances on the issue and ask exactly why they thought this was a First Amendment issue and why they thought that Prager University was clearly going to win this when, it, when they appealed to the Supreme Court after the Ninth Circus of Appeals declined it because they're so liberal, the responses I got were almost nonsensical and were not actually engaging on the constitutional issues. And so what my frustration is, is uh, could be summed up in the fact that many, many people claim to love the Constitution and love this document and claim it to be the foundation of our American society. But without an understanding on exactly how constitutional law functions and all the different moves that are made by lawyers and have been made by lawyers over the last 200 years, you're getting a very incomplete picture of exactly how this document functions, how it's actually working in the court system, working and growing with the courts, and how to apply it when issues arise and when your favorite YouTube channel is insulted. There's that. That is a noble rant right there. Get educated, everyone. I say as... Get educated. I Go can't. to law school and then drown in debt. Done and done, man. That sounds like a great time. I know. Ig- ignorance comes from everywhere. At least we can all agree on that. Is that a quote from DFW? Um, so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And we will see you next time with Sam as a consultant from abroad. Have a good week, everyone. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sam is leaving. Hear you, Sam. You're, you're, oh, everything you guys are saying is all fractured. Like, I can't understand full sentences. How about now? And I can't hear anything right now. What about now? What about now? Now? What about now? 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 I just heard a little now? bit of sound from Steven, but that's about it. Oh, well, that's all you need. I don't, I don't know why it's not working. Have you tried turning it off and on again?